here we are, Rule Galloway. Spinners of yarns with uh, Mr. Gary Bushell, X of Sounds, and various other newspapers. Good to see you again. Likewise. Uh, first time I think I met was 1982. So generally, when I do these things, uh, I start at the beginning. Yeah. You were born in South East London? I was in Woolwich in 1955. Yeah. A long, long time ago. <laughs> so when the, it's kind of like, obviously, 55 music, when did music? Well, that really was, a, a, by coincidence, it was when Elvis had his first hit and things like that, and ITV came into existence. It was quite an exciting year. I mean, music changed completely in the second half of the 50s, didn't it? It, it was the birth of everything we grew up with, probably. Yeah. Yeah. So who, who were the first ones that you you, you, you Lonnie liked? Donegan probably. Okay. Because apparently there, there was a picture uh, there is a picture of me that my mum had of me playing a banjo when I looked about four, maybe five, who knows? But doing a Lonnie Donegan impression. But <laughs> I've got no memory of this. Only the picture proves it happened. Yeah. 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 So when but, I mean, yeah, but 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 um, I mean, um, God, I don't think I bought a record. My mum was into my mum was into musicals and all that sort of stuff, and my dad was into country. So my dad was playing Johnny Cash and Marty Robbins, and my mum was playing, I don't know, West Side Story, whatever. Uh, the first record I bought was by Millie Small, My Boy Lollipop, okay, yeah. which I was probably about nine, yeah. The first record I bought my, of my own money for myself. Yeah. 64, 60? I think it was 64, yeah. yeah. So that, I mean, how much was that back then? God knows. I remember where I bought it. I remember it was a, uh, in Lewisham, but I don't remember how much it paid. Yeah, yeah. So that, that, that's, I suppose that's when pop music was coming through in the, yeah. the early 60s. Yeah. Um, Obviously the Beatles and that whole thing, Dave Clark Five and all these forgotten bands, or a lot of them are forgotten bands now, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. So did you become a skinhead then in, in the late 60s? I did not. No, no, I did not. I, 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 I dressed the... Really, I wasn't quite old enough, um, but in when I was about 15, so that was 1970, I did have the, um, the suede stylings, and I was playing, I started doing my DJ thing at, at the family parties, and my nan's house and things like that, I'd always have the, I had all of those old records, you know, like Young Gifted and Black, and you can get it if you really want, all that fantastic music, Yeah, absolutely fantastic, that's the music I grew up on, that and obviously Tamla Motown and Stacks and stuff, that was my music until... That same year, 1970, one particular episode of um, edition of uh, Top of the Pops, I yeah. saw Black Sabbath doing Paranoid and Deep Purple doing Black Knight on the same. And I thought, fuck me, I've never anything like this. It was fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So I started getting into that, and all obviously after that, uh, Led Zeppelin and. Um, uh, it would have been the, the, then your, the Slades and the T-Rexes and stuff and the people we shouldn't mention anymore like Gary Glitter but it was it was great music and I, I just loved all that yeah so because I've been listening to that, the first Slade album mm. and that, that was probably their best album and Slade Alive was a great album yeah yeah mm. yeah so you kind of like you, obviously Glam came about mid mid 70s uh, a bit earlier I think yeah yeah when, uh, when, because your 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 working career, you uh, started working as a journalist in a properly a proper job. I was not July 1978. I joined the staff of Sounds. Well, I'd had my journalistic training on the Socialist Worker with Paul Foot. Yeah. Uh, which was interesting. It was good. It was different. Yeah. Uh, um, I quite liked. I mean, I was a, a, 
at the time I was very active Trotskyist and I was into um, uh, I, met, I was working with I mean to be working with Tony Cliff and people like that was, was an eye opener to me I was still young you know um, and Cliff would just had this wonderful phrasing about him he, just, you know, just, um, he, he would say things like probably um, forbidden now but he, back then he'd say things there could be no revolution no, no hold on there could be no female liberation until after the revolution so put the kettle on Joanna <laughs> things like that, which, which of course we shouldn't laugh at, but at the time it was really funny. Yeah. But it, so, what made you want to become a journalist in the first place? I loved. I always loved writing. I always loved reading. I um, you're okay. Yeah. I always. Uh, I, I remember. I think. I think. I was on a foreign exchange with a French student who was not the nicest kid in the world. But I remember having the Daily Mirror on a beach somewhere in the south of France and reading Keith Waterhouse's column and thinking, oh, this is lovely. I just, I love the phrase. I mean, I always liked books, but Keith Waterhouse was the, uh, was the um, conduit, I suppose. Yeah. He was the he was the, tr the drug that led me in <laughs> to wanting to be a. And, but I remember my my uh, uncle worked on a crane. He had a crane down at the, uh, the gas plant, and strangely, even though he bought the socialist worker off me when I was like, a young radical, he would also buy the Sand Express, and so I was able to read Sir John Junior and all these people who, again, you you know, wouldn't didn't fit in with my politics, but I just liked the um, the character. I like like them as as yeah. Um, purveyors of their own views and yeah. Well, in, in life, you, you, you're better off to have an opinion than to uh, yeah. just float. Well, it's like Jerry Lee Lewis said: that you're either hot or you're cold. If, if you're lukewarm, the, the law will whatever the phrase is. I can't remember now. What is the rest of that saying? I've started saying I can't finish it. <laughs> if you're hot and you're cold, if you're lukewarm, then God will blight your head off, or whatever it was. Yeah, which makes sense. So, but didn't you, didn't you also, which, you, which you've never really gone, you did a fanzine for a while. I did, but it, yeah, but I'm not. I don't want to overplay it no. because it really was just a Xerox thing, okay. and I think the first issue was fucking ten issues. I've made ten, and there was only three of them ever made. So, like, yeah, I did that. It was called Napalm, as in the bomb. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, um, and before that, we'd had a thing called Pink Tent, which we used to handwrite. We were kids at school, because we were all like working class rebels at our school. And we had a thing called Pink Tent, which became a band called Pink Tent. But at the time we were doing, um, we'd do sketches, cartoons. It was like a, a strange comedy design, I suppose, in a way. Yeah. I used to have a lot of these. Uh, all the ones we did, I used to have when I lived in Eltham, but in the, in my shed, and foolishly had not wrapped them up in plastic, and they were destroyed by mice, ah. <laughs> along with my only copy of Napalm. Yeah. Mm. But that, so that, that was that was punk based, punk influenced by that point. Napalm was, yeah. but Pink Tent wasn't. No, okay. Pink Tent was more influenced by the Beatles and Monty Python. That was... <laughs> so so when, when, did, when did you first become aware of punk then? 76. 76? Yeah, yeah. And who, who was that? Because a lot of people that I've interviewed over the years have, have said that punk was the fashion first. You know, it was the fashion that came out of discos, out of clubs, out of soul clubs. Well, I wasn't aware of any no. of that. I wasn't aware of that. I was, I mean, I was still quite young. I remember, I mean, I remember sitting on with my mate Mark on the Cold Arbor Estate uh, up in Mottingham, listening to um, uh, Orgasm Addicts and things like that, and and uh, boredom and, and all these great Buzzcock songs. And we just like we like the whole vibe of punk. And I think on, when I was doing the Socialist Worker stuff. 
uh, there was a, a, a movement saying it must be fascist, it must be terrible, it must fight this. I said, you're not, you've got to listen to the clash, you've got to listen, you know, I'm defending it. But it's actually, a, it's not David Widgery, it, it's me versus someone else who's quite a well-known writer on social worker. But they were saying it's a der- terrible thing that's going to lead to all this right-wing stuff. And I'm saying, no, it isn't, it, you've got to listen to it. You've got, it's, uh, yeah, but I can't remember the... Exact details. That must have been '76. I wrote that. It must okay. have been '76. So, which was the first band you went to see there? Oh, I, punk I, band that is. The first band I went to see. Yeah. Ignoring your question, yeah, is, yeah, is okay. Hawkwind yeah, yeah. by accident because I was on the CND march when I was about 14 or 15, uh, and we went to Aldermaston, and that's when they had Stacey, yeah. who um, was naked on stage, wasn't she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And painted. Yeah. yeah. But I, apart from that, it was um, the first bands I saw were. Cockney, Cockney Rebel, the first band I saw was Cockney Rebel, somewhere up in Waterloo. And then, uh, obviously, The Clash. I was, at, uh, I remember going to see The Clash. The Clash, The Jam, Subway Sect, and I think Sham 69. Might not have been Sham 69, but I think it was those four up at the Rainbow. When it, and it, it was a front page of the Evening Standard, Punk Riot. Okay. Um, that was fantastic. <coughs> great night. What a great... We see all them bands. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, was that 77 then? 76 or 77, I can't remember. Probably was 77, 77 wasn't it? Yeah, yeah it would have been 77. Because he was still rehearsing and... Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you probably, your memory's more, you're accurate than mine, I'm sure. But I mean, uh, I saw the jam in 76, I think, at the Roundhouse. Is that likely? Possibly. I don't, I'm not good on dates. I'm not good on dates. I mean, they were definitely playing 76, but yeah. 77 is really the year when... The year when, when it all when, happened, when, yeah. when New Rose came out. So then, I bought that on the know. day it came out and at Shepherd's Bush. I used to, I was living on a White City estate and yeah. I, went, I remember going down to the record shop at Shepherd's Bush and buying New Rose and, and, and putting that on the... Because on yeah. uh, it was a funny old year because you also had boys are back in town by Finn Lizzy. I think bands like Finn Lizzy would have been a lot bigger if yeah. it hadn't been for punk. Because punk come away and sort of stole their fans to, to, yeah. to a degree. But yeah, I remember going out and buying that. God. And I loved The Clash. The Clash from my band. You know, yeah. uh, they were the ones... Uh, it was their politics that probably drew me into music in the first place. But they, but they out of all those punk bands, they were the ones that matured over time and tried took, took chances. Yeah, they did. I, I mean, I, I, at the time, I wasn't happy with it. Because I liked... I mean, I loved the first Clash album. Liked the second Clash album. <laughs> London Calling You, I can look at it now and think I probably was over over the top when I attacked it. But I just thought they'd sold out a bit. Because I think, all of a sudden, no Elvis beat was a Rolling Stones in 1977. And now you turn into the fucking Rolling Stones. And yeah. now I can look at it and think, I think it's one superb single album, yeah. but spread over four sides of vinyl, which it shouldn't have been. Yeah. But it, the, the great songs are really great on that album. Yeah. But I think uh, I didn't like Santanista. That was shit. Probably too many songs. Too many songs. I think you, you have to you have to mature as a band. You can't do the same songs over and over again with each album because you're right. But you can't you say know, no Elvis Beatles or Rolling no, Stones. No, you no, then no, turn no. into the Rolling Stones. But yeah. I, 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 the only thing later on about the Clash. I mean, I, I did genuinely love the Clash and I'd still have a, probably have a Clash tattoo if I had the chance um, I think a lot of it was window dressing really I mean they were political but they weren't really 
um, actively political. Yeah. When when we went to the when we went to um, whatever year this was, when the National Front marched through Lewisham and we stopped it, I think that was seventy six. It might have been seventy seven. You'll correct me. Um, but the clash were there at the peaceful bit, but they weren't there at the violent bit. But the, and I was at the violent bit when it was all it all kicked off. Yeah. Yeah. So it's because. That, that was that was a rising thing in the mid 70s <coughs> the, the far right yeah in, in, in within yeah. trying to connect with music bands you know so it, it must have been quite quite concerning to to uh, you know to well they didn't really didn't really start to have their musical side until the later in the 70s did they? yeah 79 with yeah. Leeds yeah. and uh, yeah. you know what they were trying to do in London yeah. but I remember going up to Leicester and places like that marching against DNF because they were pretty big up that way, weren't they? Yeah. But um, um, uh, uh, I was at Red Line Square. That was pretty nasty. Yeah, it, it did get very violent back then. So you kind of like you. What, what, when did you join Sounds? 1978. That, that yeah. must have been a, a, a no-brainer for you. you. You're doing what your passion is with music. Yeah. yeah I, I went in and saw Alan Lewis, who was the editor. Yeah. Uh, for the interview. Uh, I was really I was expecting to get some freelance work out of it hoping to get some freelance um, and I took in the, the fanzines I'd written the, the, the napalms yeah. and we had a, um, a conversation and he said well show me what you can do and over the next not eight or nine days I went out and did about ten reviews and put them through in fact then you couldn't email things at the, <laughs> put them through the door yeah. and after ten days I got a phone call you got the job so I got a staff job out of nowhere really and I think the first the first reviews I had published was The Clash at Aylesbury supported by playing for the first time as the specials, the specials, because that morning they'd been the Coventry Automatics, yeah, yeah. and that night they were the specials, and that's when I met Neville and got on with Neville really well, and he wasn't even in the band then. <laughs> Neville was the um, the roadie then, yeah. yeah. So we had um, that was so, and that was before um, Bernie held him back, didn't he? He said you got hold back, <laughs> hold him back till the time is right, and he held him back um, uh, the, the specials back. Uh, and they wrote gangsters about him, didn't they? Yes. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So that, I mean, that was that was. I mean, it was such a thrilling time because people forget. Everyone says how wonderful the enemy was. Enemy had killed off punk in their heads. They even even Charles Charles Murray had written. Um, he'd given uh, the first Clash album a bad review and saying the punk was dead and it was all shit. And I thought, I'm going out every night and I'm seeing all these great bands. How could it be dead? I mean, uh, the early bands I wrote about UK subs. Um, Skids, Ruts, members. I mean, these were fucking great bands. And I, I got really annoyed on their behalf that they were being killed off. And I thought, no, it's not dead, it's still happening. <laughs> but it, it, it's like any kind of scene, it, it, it matures into the second stage and then goes into the third stage. Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe it filters down to, you know... You could say that, or you could say the music business takes control again and makes the rebellion into yeah. something like marketable. Yeah. Because basically, what was New Wave except punk made marketable? But having said that, brilliant, brilliant people like Ian Jury and Elvis Costello yes. came through, so I'm not going to knock that. Yeah. yeah. But it, it, was a, it was an exciting time for music. It was, it was all fast. Everything was quite fast. There was, you know, the, it was a new exciting. scene or a new thing coming it, through. I think, and also what made it exciting was the fact that 
the record companies couldn't control it anymore. It was yeah. not them telling us what to like, it was it coming up on the floor. Yeah. And that was a wonderful <laughs> thing about it. Yeah. And it was all, all of these fantastic, I mean, bands like Squeeze might, might not, probably would have made it, but they wouldn't have made it so quickly if it hadn't been for the fact that punk had kicked down all the doors. Yeah. And it didn't only kick down the door for loud, fast punk, it kicked down the door for two-tone, it kicked down new mod, all of these fantastic things that came up. And, New, maybe even new wave of British heavy metal because of the doors being kicked down. So, so were you then? When did you first become aware of mod then a, a, a revival? Um, Nineteen seventy-eight, as early as that. When after all more cons, I mean, I did go interview the Jam in seventy-eight, and the all more cons album come out. But then there was the Great British Music Festival where a lot of them were at, and we used to go to. I say we. I used to go to the Bridge House in Canning Town, where it used to be Mod Monday. And you'd go there and see bands like, who I actually saw this band in 1976, the Purple Hearts, though they deny. When I saw them in 1976, they were called Jack, Plug and the Sockets. And they always denied that, but they fucking were. I saw them at Barkin, uh, Barkin the Polytechnic, and they were supporting um, uh, Generation X. And they always denied that, but they were. But anyway, by, by, the, by the early part of 79, they were the Mod Mondays, and they were getting loads of people out, yeah. and it used to be full of young kids in parkers. It was like, a, and they were a lot younger than the people going to pub gigs by then. You know, it was a, the start of something, and then and the chords, and the chords were obviously in, in, uh, influenced by the Clash as well as the Jam, and it was, it was. Uh, I think, it, I think is a bit unfair. You know what it was like in the music business. When something starts happening, everyone gets involved too quickly. And I don't think those bands really had a chance to grow yeah. in before they got the full focus of the music industry on them. Um, but obviously then the last one I saw of this, uh, the three, was Secret Affair, who were a different cut of the cloth altogether because they weren't really punk. They were obviously more, much more soul-influenced. And it was basically soul with punkier words or, or with a with a, a rockier rhythm section or whatever yeah, but it was a great I mean, great voice seems like um, yeah he was a, a, a great singer um, and they had I mean, Time Fraction and songs like that I think My World and still stand up today don't they yeah they, no, they do mm. and, but the chords do as well the chords do yeah you know the, yeah. the chords uh, but it, it, going back it was everything moved quite fast so you know but by the time 1980, 81, mod was over. For it some, was. For some. For some. Well, you know. yes, but I think the reason was it was because it got leapfrogged by two-tone. And when I was in, in, I'm trying to think of the years now, the years might be wrong, but I think I'm right to say that in 79, you had um, Secret Affair headlining at the Lyceum, and you had these other bands like Madness, like The Selector, on the bill, and within a month, they they had become they had become the bands because they their, their records were so much more commercial, they were catchier, they were riding the tide better than, than the mod bands were, and so I loved Selector, really really loved the Selector, uh, and they were quite unfortunate really because they 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 were curtailed. I mean, it all went up. To be honest with you, mostly it was about them. Go, the specials broke up and the selector broke up after touring America, and there's such a lot of pressure. They did a lot of work out there, and they, that, that, that's what broke them. But they were particularly unlucky. The selector, who can I propose now to Paul? Then I'm still I'm still available. Um, that's my wife. Um, 
Um, no, I've lost my track now, but I've been stupid. Selector. Selector. Yeah, they were really unlucky because they had that record Celebrate the Bullet about a week before John Lennon was killed. Yeah, yeah. And then everyone misunderstood, deliberately misunderstood the lyrics yeah. and they, uh, it, it killed them dead. But uh, obviously back now with uh, uh, Pauline again and uh, um, doing really well. I actually went to... I went to New York with the specials and I went to Texas with the selector uh, in 1980, I think. And that was incredible to see them winning over new audiences. More of a struggle for the selector because I was in Texas and they were, people weren't expecting them to sound like they did. But the specials were fantastic, you know. They, they did really well out there. But it broke them. It was so much pressure to put on a band to, to go and do those long tours. And you have to do a long tour to break America. You can't, there's no shortcut to breaking America. Yeah. But is that then the pressure of the record label to get hit after oh, hit after yeah, hit? Yeah, of course it is. You kind of like yeah. then water yourself down yeah. for the next you really, releases? Really, you could take it in a, a more reasonable and considerate world. They'd have said, well, yeah, we'll do it in bits. <laughs> you don't need to do 90 dates on the road or whatever. You, don't need, you can take it a bit slower. Because it doesn't, you know, there is time to mature. There is time to grow. But it's so much pressure to go out and do gig after gig after gig. Um, there was, um, we went down actually, it was my idea, stupidly, to take, when we were in, in Dallas, I said, let's go down to the uh, South Fork Ranch. And that was a heavy, heavy moment because we turned up there, we were taking away, we were posing up, we were doing all the pictures about the South Fork. Could I, you know, love Dallas and JRU and all that sort of stuff. Well, a load of geezers turned up with baseball bats and it got really, really heavy, really quick. And it's just like, it was, you forget how racist it was that back yeah. in the day. We booked out of that hotel, and me and Ross Halfin went on to do UFO, also in Texas. And I remember this ball boy, uh, bellboy, who'd been really, really friendly, uh, to everybody to their face, came up to me and Ross at the end and said, um, oh, it might be good for you to go and see UFO. And I won't even use the word he used, no black people, let's say, he said. I said, oh, fucking hell, really? <laughs> Could we, we never had... I didn't know people who thought like that. Yeah, yeah. Back at home, you know, we none of it. My, my nan always used to say, "There's good and bad in all races." And so to have someone to be so blatantly racist was quite a shock. Yeah, America still is like that too. too oh, without from a doubt. Times I've been over there. Yeah, without a doubt. But the, well, yeah. look at look, when um, well, was it Neville? Was it? Oh no, I can't remember which one it was. Um, one of the specials, one of the black members of the specials, said, I know you've been Neville or Linville, but I remember him telling me he went into a shop and they got really funny because he was in the shop until they heard him voice. He, when they heard his voice, he said, oh, sorry, he didn't realise you were English. Could I, if they thought it was you know, just superficial nonsense. Who, who used to pay for those trips then? The record label? Record the label did. See, so I was, what a I great was, job. Oh well, except that I was so puritanical and so socialist back then, I, I refused, I actually refused foreign trips for about two years and it was only when I was offered trips with bands I believed in I thought I'm going to do this so I think I had in all the time I was here until 1980 I only went, over, I only went to America once and that was to Alicia Bridges believe it or not with um, I Love the Nightlife in Chicago uh, or Detroit it was one of them um, but, and, but then, when the when the two-tone bands were going over, because I felt I was championing them and I wanted to, them to succeed, I, I did start going. 
So I went to um, yeah, I went to the states several times with them. Ended up with um, this sounds like I'm name dropping, but well, I'm going to say anyway. Life, I don't so, mind yeah. name dropping because I'm going to tell you that when I saw the specials play at my father's place in New York. The person who, who picked me up in her record company limo was Debbie Harry. <laughs> so I'm going over the Brooklyn Bridge, and I've got Debbie Harry there, and I've got uh, Mark Stein there. Oh, sorry, Chris Stein there. Oh, sorry, I've had a drink. Chris Stein there, Debbie Harry there. Uh, Chris is chopping out a line of cocaine for his own pleasure. You got. I'm in a, a, a stretch limo driving over. The, the sun's coming down. All I'm thinking in my head is, wait till I tell them back at New- the Blackie for Newbridge Working Men's Club about this. <laughs> I'm pinching myself. But Debbie Harry, because that, that was my first record was Blondie Denise. Ooh. And at the age of 11, she was the most amazing looking. She was. And such a, such a nice, smart woman yeah. as well. I mean, but she was older than she was perceived at that time. By about 10 years, yeah. didn't she? Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, of the three people I met, I was actually tongue-tied to the extent which I, I took a while to even be able to ask my question. Debbie Harry was the third. The first was Joe Strummer, and the second was Phil Lynott. Because I just loved them so much. And yeah. just, oh. <laughs> did, did he become friends with Phil Lynott? <laughs> I like Phil, but I mean, I wouldn't have said I was a friend of no. his. No, I mean, I'd love to have been a friend of his, but you know, he was great company. He was a great seducer. <laughs> I'm, I'm, he showed how easy it was to, to seduce a woman um, by sitting at a bar. He, he, he sat at the bar and then held his head in his hands and looked like he was miserable. And within three, four minutes, two women had taken come up to him, oh, you all right, Phil? And within ten minutes, one of them was giving him a blowjob outside. That, that, that's all I'm saying. But the saddest memory I've got probably is, is the last time I saw him alive, which was in Birmingham, when I actually stepped over his groupie and saw the syringe on the floor to do the last interview I just reviewed. And I just, it was a shame for him to, a man to have so much talent and so much promise, yeah. to have ended up a junkie. Yeah. I mean, you, you don't really, you know, late seventies, early eighties. You don't really understand drugs when you you you're a teenager. You're just coming into oh, your teenage years. No. And, uh, in fact, the first time I did cocaine was complete by accident because I'm sitting there with I was on the, on the road with Eddie in the Hot Rods, and the guitarist whose surname I forget, Dave, said I was sharing a room with Dave, and he said, "Oh, do you want some of this?" And I thought it was speed. Because it was the right colour. Like, oh, that's not speed. <laughs> You've had some Charlie, mate. <laughs> okay, fair enough. But it wouldn't have been char- called Charlie at that point. No, it Was wouldn't it? have been. No, you know, no, no. Uh, oh, God knows. Young. But it was Charlie, yeah, um, as we know it. So, kind of like free because that first wave of punks is clearly identifiable, kind of like first wave, second wave, and then a third wave. Yeah. Uh, the second wave, you'd be talking about the skids, you'd be talking yeah, about yeah, yeah, uh, Sham 69. Yeah. Uh, Ruts. Yeah, the Ruts. I, I mean, even the Ruts, kind of like they, they were 79 when they, they released their first single. So you, they you were, know. they were. I saw them in 78, though. And they, they were. Funny enough, a parallel development to the special because they were combining punk and reggae in a different yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're right. And then, and then we had the upstarts and the rejects as the third wave. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Oh, kind of. You could say you know, a third wave. But the, I, I would say the third wave for me, the second wave would be stroke '78 into '79, which would include the upstarts because the upstarts released their first single. 
I think late 78 the rejects were 79 mm. you know so you kind of like you've gone the first record new rose kind of if, if it's uh, if it seemed that new rose was the first punk record then that was 77 yeah, was. Yeah. then 76 76 there was a clearly a, a kind of like a change really of, of you know talking about you, you've got the fans coming in off the back of the first wave who were a bit more dedicated to the music because they they bought into the the sale of the the the, the clash the, the pistols uh, the buzzcocks yeah. they come in with their sound and their sound is totally different or similar but different to to what the first bands came out you know and Jimmy, I think I think you got a bit realer as well because a lot of the first bands though I love them dearly they were pretending to be what they weren't yeah mm. yeah and yeah. The next lot were, were more real, whatever more. I mean, like uh, What's Richard, Jimmy real. Richard, mm, <laughs> I like Jimmy, <laughs> but, but as Judy Virtue once said, it must have been a fucking strong wind or they'd have blow wells got down to Hersham. <laughs> but they, I but, think he was channeling the people around him, channeling, yeah, yeah, channeling, yeah, yeah. But that, that's that's you know that's a, a, an opportunist way of. You know, breaking breaking yourself through. You know, you you, you work with your audience, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. and uh, with the up with the upstarts, you just knew they were the real deal. Yeah. And with the rejects, they were completely fucking authentic. You know. But in '79, <coughs> when I lived in Scotland, those last two Sham shows, Sham were the biggest punk. I was there. You were there, were you? I was. I was 11, 12, uh, uh, 12 at that point. Yeah, well, the, you know. the um the Sham's farewell. Yeah, that was up there. That's where I met Scully. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean that was the when the Pistols came on stage. It was Stephen Sham Pistols, and Branson was up there. And yeah, yeah, I remember that. But it's, it's down as one of the worst. <coughs> the Rainbow is down as one of the worst. Well, they weren't, they weren't going to do the Rainbow, but because Glasgow had been so successful, they thought, oh, we'll do it for London. And that was, I was there. It was just dreadful. Um, could you add... The, the first thing... I, I come out of the tube at Finsbury Park, and the first thing I saw was... Um, I bet not, I'm not sure if I should say his name, but I know his name. Uh, an older Nazi sticking a glass in some kid's face to get his ticket to go in. And there was about 30 of these proper neo-Nazi being British movement people, German movement, we used to call them. Um, and they managed to get around them a bigger mob of about 200 people. And this 200 people just ran around the rainbow, smashing it up, really, really just yeah. terrible. And this, uh, it, Percy had got rid of his old, all the people who used to be the his people on stage, like the West Ham people, the ICF people, they'd gone. And he had these... Um, uh, road runners like motorbike, motorbike yeah, yeah. road rat type uh, no, people, yeah. and um, uh, it was just yeah. awful. And they, I remember Jimmy going off stage and coming back on and doing his big speech, saying, "You, you know, I give everything for you, and you killed me." And I, uh, but I think Stephen, uh, Stephen Paul were there, and I thought, "Fuck that, yeah. <laughs> we're doing this." Yeah, yeah. And that was the end of the Champions. Yeah. You know, that was an awful night. That yeah. Yeah. young Nazi London. United. Yeah, horrible people. I had some friends that went, and I've heard the stories. But at that, around about that time, that's when the rejects first came into yes. uh, into sounds, yeah. introduced themselves. They did. They sort of 
they sort of tricked me a bit. <laughs> then, like, there was a little bit of the artful dodger about them, you know. Could they, they actually told me you know, they had a full band going and all this sort of stuff. The, the drummer couldn't be there, he'd been in the car crash. That's what they used when we put them in the studio. Oh, the drummer's coming, but he's in the car crash. They didn't have a fucking drummer. And that's why um, Pete Wilson ended up playing drums on that first EP. But they had so much charisma about them and energy. Yeah. And, they, yeah, you know, they were just... That first EP, that one that came out in Small Wonder, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, like, I like Punk and I Like Sham, I got nicked over West Ham. I mean, what a fucking great song that is. Yeah. But that, that, that was, a, it was a great introduction for them. But it's, you know, maybe the football connection, you know, probably was the thing that did them in in the end. Well, I think I said this on that um, Rejects film. The difference between Iron Maiden and the Rejects was that Iron Maiden would go out and say, we're West Ham, you're Manchester, you're Liverpool, whatever you are, tonight we're all have a party. They go out and say, we're West Ham, you're Liverpool, you're cunts, who wants it? You know, and that's what, yeah, they just, yeah, yeah. it was just, uh, uh, mercifully I wasn't there at the Birmingham gig. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, everyone knows what a, what a terrible night that was. Yeah. Were you at Hatfield? Hatfield when the, when the Madness played? Yeah. No, no that's another one of the, the that worst. Was, that was one of the worst ones. But I knew the people involved. I mean, that was... It was... Um, cause, uh, Grant, Grant was there. Yeah. And Grant was one of the ones who had a little Union Jack on. Could I win the mod? Um, and all the older, these older guys turned up who were basically red action um, and saw Union Jack and thought, oh, it must be fascist and started just slicing up young kids. It was terrible. It was the worst thing they ever did, that was. And they just attacked teenagers. These were grown men attacking teenagers because they got a Union Jack flag. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it was a funny old time, you know, there was a... Violence was a regular occurrence at gigs. Yeah, it was. It was a violent time. I mean, even the poor old lurkers suffered really badly from the violence. Yeah. Um, but even Adam and the Ants had a, a fairly violent following in at the beginning. Adam and the Ants, yeah. yeah. In fact, I think the first Adam and the Ants gig I ever saw was when they played Elephant Castle, maybe early 78, something like that, with some Polytechnic at Elephant Castle. And I just remember it ended with loads of cop cars and loads of ambulances. It just got really heavy, yeah. yeah. It, it was violent times. Yeah. But that was the print, the print college, wasn't it, Elephant and Castle? It could have been. It could have well been, yeah. Elephant College of Printing, right yeah. The yeah, yeah, yeah. Around the back. So the, the rejects were coming. You got in, you got involved with them. Is it, they as a asked, manager? They asked me to manage them. A loose management, or <laughs> I mean, I got them as far as I could take them. I was getting them gigs. So obviously, I got them gigs at the Bridge House and places like that. Which, um, and then I got Jimmy Percy involved, and we went into EMI. And at the time, really, I didn't fully understand how easy it was, how much they would wanted bands like this. Yeah, yeah. Um, I got them a, a £125,000 advance to do four albums. This is a lot of money back then. Back then, it's huge. <laughs> and, but I think if I just said, well, I'll make it a bit more, I would probably, probably have doubled it. But I didn't yeah, yeah. realise, you know, I wasn't, yeah. I wasn't into all of that. But when I got that EMI deal with Chris Briggs, um, I thought this is not me I'm out of my depth I don't really know what I'm doing yeah. and that's when I thought you need to find I'll find him a better manager and I said to Jimmy who's a better manager and he, he Tony Gordon <laughs> Tony Gordon 
<laughs> I, mean, I wasn't really into um, all I wanted was all I wanted was for them to do well and I thought they needed a better manager that's basically yeah. it yeah, yeah. maybe it wasn't the right decision you know? <laughs> but um, yeah so they got signed to EMI and Tony Gordon took them over really they needed someone like um, Led Zeppelin's manager they needed him yeah. um, someone who was tougher than them and, and smarter than them um, but Tony, Tony, Tony had managed Lulu, you know. <laughs> he wasn't really. And then Boy George. Yeah. But he, and then Boy George, yeah. He, uh, I mean, Mickey, one of the great guitarists. Mm. You know, he had a shadow of a doubt, you know. Uh, he was. He, 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 he probably hampered in. in in, 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 in the fact of the connection with Punk that he was never able to take it on to uh, another level you know he had the chance to play guitar for Ozzy Osbourne after okay. Randy Rhodes died after Randy Randy was a superb guitarist um, after Randy died Ozzy wanted Jimmy uh, sorry Ozzy wanted Mickey to um, to, uh, to be his guitarist but when he went to meet Ozzy and, uh, I don't know if you know this story. I got to the hotel room, and Ozzy had Ross Halfin naked on a lead, walking him around like a dog. And Mick just hated it because he hates bullying. And he just in the end up, he spinning, punching. Punch Ozzy on the jaw and walked out. So that was the end of Mickey's attempt at, or you know, Mickey's chance to join in uh, the blizzard of Oz. <laughs> so in, in you, kind of like 79, you've got the mod revival really coming through yeah, off the yeah. back of Quadrophenia. You've got uh, Two-Tone coming through. Yes. You've got, the, the, I'll say, the second wave of punk, which is the tail end of 78 into 79. Yeah. The upstarts, the, the yeah. rejects. Yeah. You could go out every night and see a great band. It was superb. Yeah, it was superb. Yeah. Yeah. But then, it kind of like for, for some reason, in 1980, you decided to do all you, the album. How did that come about? Right. Well, I decided um, that with the upstarts and the rejects as a vanguard, that something was changed about punk. And I thought that. Um, Punk had become different. It, this punk was different from the original punk in that it was more authentically working class. Uh, and the sound was different because instead of... <coughs> what the, the difference was, the guitars were heavier, but the chants were more like terrorist chants. It was more a football thing. It became more... That was what defined... I think they were the defining key differences. So I thought, we need to recognise this as something new. And I think me and Dave McCulloch throughout 79 and into 80 we were writing about new punk and real punk but it wasn't really the right and because Jeff when he went on stage he would always say instead of one, two, three, four, he'd always say oi which is like the old cockney yeah, yeah. I thought well this is the great word and so I thought yeah it's oi they're the oi bands and we started um, well they let me put start an oi the column in um, towards the end of 1980 when and the, the, the album I think came out Towards the end of 1982, yeah, yeah. didn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and but, but they weren't exclusively oi bands on that first album, were they? Or they it was young. I suppose it didn't exist really at that point. No, no. What it was, it was. I think. I think what you, a different way of saying it would be say they were street rock and roll bands. They were yeah. working class rock and roll bands. They were, in that sense, and that's what we marked them. So I had Stalking the Dogs and Cox Sparrow because they were. 
the roots of it yeah. to me they were the yeah, roots yeah. of it yeah. I could have I don't know why I didn't have Menace I should have had Menace I could have had Menace but I never did maybe the, the publishing weren't available or whatever yeah. um, and then we had the, could I, I had most of that year I think I went round I had a thing called Two Men and you, you won't remember this probably I had a thing called Two Men on a Bike Okay. And yeah. we used to, we went round different. Me and Ross went round different parts yeah. of the world, um, uh, different parts of England, finding bands. That's why I did when I when I could I, I thought everyone in the music press was very West End centred. They didn't want to go outside. They wanted didn't want to go outside Soho. They wanted they wanted to go to gigs that was paid for by record companies, and they wanted to be treated to lavish free drinks and lunches and all this sort of bollocks. I thought, well, there's a world out there they're not going to. Then I never once saw any of them people at the Bridge House. And I thought, well, if I'm not seeing them at the Bridge House, I'm not seeing them in Nottingham, I'm not seeing them in Edinburgh. Yeah, yeah. So I went, I started going around the country trying to find these different bands. I went down to Brighton and saw the Sestry Babies and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Went up to Edinburgh and did um, The Exploited. So that, that, also... That, that was the first time I, I read about The Exploited was when they played the YMCA. Yeah. And you did a review of it. Uh, yeah, there you go. And yeah, you, yeah. You, you referenced their crew, which was kind of like people that I knew. Oh. Oh, oh, big as a Ford and Baldy, the big bongo, oh, yeah, yeah, big, big bongo, bongo and yeah, yeah, big bongo, you know? yeah. and, and Fat John, wasn't it? Big John, big John, big John yeah. and Gary. Oh yeah, and, but I, uh, I, I like them. I mean, they were they were mad, but I, 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 that's probably one of the reasons I liked them because they were pretty mad. Um, but what made you do that one then? Had you heard of the Exploited before then, or was this just a, an opportunist get on your bike with Ross and uh, you, you've landed in Edinburgh? But, it was there was no record company involved. So there was no favours involved. I, I, I honestly don't 